The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Schlamazel on your cell phone and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 130 with guest Jackie Goldstein, recorded live Friday, September 9th, 2005. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VBNet and ASPNet classes remotely, online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for ASPNet development, online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who just arrived in Los Angeles at the PDC, and hey, no fires, Carl Franklin. You remember the fires, Richard? Oh yeah, no, I was there uh, two years ago. Richard Campbell in Vancouver, my co-host. I'm Carl, by the way, just in case you don't know the drill and you're new here. Uh, we're talking about the, the PDC two years ago, 2003, right? 2003, yeah. 2003 and Brian PDC. Randall. I remember Brian Randall's house. He could see the flames from his place. Yeah. And we were trying to talk him into packing up and leaving. He's like, oh, no, no. They got to burn down so many houses between here and there. I'm not going. <laughs> It'll be fine. I'm like, dude. What are you doing? <laughs> it was crazy. If you go back and listen to the show we did at the PDC, we did a we did a quiz show at the PDC, Mark Dunn and I, and uh, that was uh, on a Monday night, just like the quiz show is going to be uh, tonight. Really, no. If you're listening to this on Monday, uh, yeah. And we, you know, people were still trickling in. I remember Michelle Larue Bustamante was arriving late because she had to drive up from San Diego, and she had to drive like on the highway through the fires and stuff, and oh, it was bad. It was bad. Oh, yeah, a bunch of us had planned on riding our bikes down to San Diego, and we canceled the trip because the highway was so smoky. What a bad scene that was. Oh, man. Well, anyway, at least nobody nobody got that hurt. Uh, I don't know if there were any fatalities associated with the PDC. I never heard any. But anyway, well, if you're listening to this... And you know, and it's the and it's the week of the PDC. We're probably already at the PDC, uh, as as Jeff mentioned there in the intro. Um, I came in Sunday night, or I'm going to come in Sunday night. As of this record, I can't do the time shifting. Yeah, this is tough. Stuff. 
It's very tough, you know. I, I can't I'll pretend. be there Sunday morning. Right. I can't pretend that it's a different time. You'll be there Sunday. I'll be there Sunday. We're going to be there on uh, a Monday night, as I was mentioning, doing a quiz show. And this is a, 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 a quiz show called we're calling the 64-Bit Question. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to pick some people out of the audience because nobody uh, took the bait, and well, except for Rob Windsor. He's definitely going to be a contestant. He's the only one. <laughs> He's, He's the, the only, only one. one who said, yeah, I'll, I'd like to do it. Uh, so if you're, if you want to just be in the audience and, you know, you, you can scream loud and we'll, you know, convince us to be a contestant, you can, you can play the quiz and we're going to ask you some questions from, uh, to test your skills of, uh, to test your knowledge of .NET, but also of .NET rocks. We're going to be pulling out some factoids that were, uh, dropped on our shows by our guests going all the way back. And, uh, you're going to have to guess uh, from multiple choice, you know, what the answer is, what, what, what was actually said, then we'll play the clip. And, you know, if you're close, we'll, you, you win the prize. Uh, I think we're doing best of five, three, three sessions of best of five, right? Three contestants, I think, Richard. Yeah. And Richard, what time and what place can people find us at the PDC for the quiz show? It's Monday night, 6 o'clock, room 150 slash 151. But do us a favor and check your schedule because you never know when these things are going to change. And hey, this is time shifting. It may be the PDC now, but it wasn't the PDC when I said this. That's right. So be careful. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> um, my Jerry Lewis. Ah, update on the road trip. We, you know, if you've been not listening to the shows lately, and if you haven't been paying attention, we're we're crazy for doing this, Richard, but we're actually going to travel the United States in a, in an RV, in a big old RV, uh, you know, you, me, and Jeff, and uh, we're going to be going to about 20 different spots. We're going down from Boston, down the eastern seaboard, down to Atlanta, all the way to Orlando, back up to Nashville, and then over to Memphis, down through Texas, and uh, across to Phoenix, San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and from San Fran, we're, uh, we're going to be there for the launch of Visual Studio 2005, and then we're heading over to Dev Connections, where we're doing a .NET Rock show, and uh, you can get it all at .netrocks.com slash roadtrip. Now, some of these events you have to RSVP for, so go ahead and check out the website and make sure that uh, make sure that you know where you're going. Some of the venues have not yet been solidified, so they'll as they come in, they'll we'll post. There'll be more information. Yeah, there'll be more information. And while you're on the .NET Rock site, uh, make sure you click on that big red uh, Red Cross donate button. Absolutely. Uh, the guy, the folks uh, that were affected by Hurricane Katrina need your help. And one of the best ways you can do that is to contribute to the to the Red Cross. Uh, Carl and I already have, and we're encouraging you to as well. And give cash too, because they they can't. You know, when you when you give like socks and stuff like that, somebody has to be there on the other end to actually unpack it and give it to somebody. And that's not it's not a very practical use of uh, help. Uh, the best thing to do is to give cash, just like our president said. Anyway, you know, I, I, it really hit me hard because I love New Orleans. And, you know, jazz came from New Orleans, man. And, I, you know, I'm a big fan of jazz and blues. And, you know, that's the birthplace of it, man. You can't – it just doesn't get any more American than New Orleans. 
And they don't call it the hurricane for nothing, folks. Anyway, uh, as I was working today, our friend Miguel Castro uh, from New York, he IM'd me this link to uh, an article by Andy Hopper on The Code Project. And I shrinksterized it. It's at shrinkster.com slash 7W2. And this sort of answered an age-old question that I've had um, about Windows services in .NET. And uh, as many of you know, I teach classes in .NET, and one of the things we do is we build Windows services. And it always comes up that how come you can't specify a description field, a text field to show up in the service manager? The description is blank. It's always blank. And uh, you have the name, the display name, which you can set to a kind of a descriptive thing, but that, that just shows the name of the service. The description is blank. So this article shows you how to uh, write code. It gives you some code to specify the description in a service. Very nice. Thank you very much, Andy Hooper. Hopper. It's pretty straightforward stuff. I mean, all it's doing is inserting an entry into the uh, registry. So you're using the uh, the Win32 registry key classes to uh, to stick that uh, particular entry in. Uh, it beats me why this was left out in the first place. There's not much to it. Yeah. Yeah. It must have just been an oversight. Well, uh, you know, I want to talk a bit about podcasting. We've been doing quite a lot of that at Pwop lately. We did a podcast for Nintendo. Uh, we did, and you can read about that on my blog. We're doing some for other companies, and, and the phone is ringing off the hook these days. Um, we are have reevaluated our podcast feeds, and we think we're going to be able to provide uh, full MP3 and full WMA and full lo-fi WMA podcast feeds. Right now, our feeds currently point to torrent files, so you need a BitTorrent client like Azurius in order to download it with a podcast feed. We're going to try a few things. We're going to uh, you know, streamline some things and see if we can't uh, make that work for you, because I know a lot of people have been asking me by email, you know, why, why don't you have that? The answer right now is bandwidth, but, uh, you know, upon a, a little bit of system analysis, we figured there are places we could tighten it up, and uh, we th- we're going to do that. So look for that in a couple of weeks. Um, I can't say when, actually. Just look for that. Uh, we lastly, are listening, and we are working on it. Yes. Yes, we are. Uh, lastly, Richard, uh, I want to talk about somebody I've already, whose name I already mentioned in this introduction, Michelle LaRue Bustamante. You know, she's a good friend of both of ours. Yeah. Yeah. She's been on the show MLB. a couple of times. MLB, Major League Baseball, Michelle LaRue Bustamante. That's how you can remember. Well, anyway, you, if you ever meet her, you'll never forget her. Anyway, she's she's uh, been a guest. She also uh, helped us out on Mondays in the early days. Um, by doing a little bit called Stunt Musician Spotlight. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. She um, talks to indie bands and, you know, interviews them and tries to get them to talk about their influences and, you know, where they play and advice for bands and whatnot. And she plays their music. So it's a great little, you know, slice of life for the indie band scene if you're into, uh, you know, original music and, and people who go out and play it. So, she has spinned off her own podcast called, guess what, Stunt Musician Spotlight, and you can check it out at stuntmusician.com or stuntmusician.net, and uh, Pop is, is producing the shows for her. Uh, the first one is, is the first one that we've done for her that hasn't been part of Mondays is up there now. The band is Killola, and uh, she did a great job with them, so look for, look for that. We love it. Good luck, Michelle. 
Beautiful website, Michelle. Way to go. Looks great. Yeah, Dax did a great job on the design and uh the Once again. Yep. He's a he's a design god, our friend Dax. Well, Richard, before we get started, uh, I, I want to uh, have a little conversation with uh, Greg Brill, who stopped in the studio today on his way to New York City. He's right here with me. Hi, Greg. How are you, Carl? And uh, Greg is the uh, founder of Infusion Development, uh, InfusionDev.com, which also happens to be the company that Nick Landry now works for. And everybody knows Nick. He's been on Don and Rocks. <laughs> have a lot of fun with Nick. <laughs> yeah. Active Nick. Active Nick. Well named. You saw him in, in the Vegas thing, right? No, I did. What's on this? Annie? He didn't tell you about that. No, there's of many. Of course, Nick he tell, didn't. He doesn't tell me a lot of things. Why would he tell his boss about how he got humiliated on national television by uh, being rejected from uh, the girl he was hitting on in a bar at Caesar's Palace? I don't know why he would tell you about that. We'll have to look that up. <laughs> we'll have to look that up. Yes. <laughs> but uh, Greg is here because uh, he wants to tell us all about uh, some things that are going on at InfusionDev.com at Infusion Development. What do you guys do down there? Well, I mean, it's uh, we're a Microsoft partner, Gold partner. We do a lot of .NET development, but mostly we do trading systems for Wall Street investment banks. Ooh, the big stuff. The big stuff. So if you see uh, traders hunched over their desks, uh, pricing and trading derivatives and buying and selling fixed income instruments. Yeah. Is this terminology exciting? I think. No, no, but, oh, well, but you know. it is if you're in it, maybe. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, equity systems, all that. But we write the big systems. Uh, moves a lot of money through it, and uh, it's got a lot of challenges. So that, your uh, customers must be like, you know, the big guys down on Wall Street? The customers are the big guys down on Wall Street. Um, yeah. My guys are the technical side of the house. The business is the people that decide what they're going to trade. They talk to uh, their technical people, and their technical people hire us. And we were one of the first guys, actually, um, who was doing .NET on Wall Street. Yeah, that's what Nick was telling me. You you were very early on uh, getting people excited about .NET. Yeah, it was a very lonely world, Carl. Yeah. It was a J2E universe. And I was originally a big comm guy. I was like a completely unknown Don Box type for financial services. But so would, you're a developer. I am a developer, yeah. As well, okay. Yeah, years ago, I'd be talking to you about multi-threaded apartments and yeah. co-martial inter-thread and distrieve and the global interface table <laughs> for 250 an hour, which was damn good money at the time. I, I, could, wow. I could work through a VB to ATL C++ problem in my Sweet. day. And now I'm promoted out of that area of competence into a managerial role. So you were in you were involved in .NET from the very beginning. I was. We actually have a series of books called Code Notes. CodeNotes dot com. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of developers love them. Not enough buy them. Uh, uh, but nonetheless, um, that yeah. actually got us into uh, .NET really early on. We we did a .NET beta book. We were doing a J two E book also, and we had to do .NET for balance. Mm. I actually I hate to admit this, but I thought that uh, dot Microsoft wasn't going to make it after I saw what J two E was doing. Yeah. I was always a big fan, but VB6 versus J2E, it was kind of hard to right. argue. Yeah. Um, then we did the .NET book, and I've always been a Microsoft fan. I looked at this stuff, and I said, this stuff's unstoppable. Yeah. Yeah. And people were saying, well, you know, uh, J2E is we'll too entrenched. They you know? said, and we'll I said, see, yeah. But I went nuts. Yeah. So, so you built some software yourself back then, or what was the – how did you start Infusion? Um, well, originally during the dot-com era, when uh, everybody's out making their uh, their millions – Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of concentrating on the folks that were left behind. Like the investment banks had all of this money, yeah. um, yet they were completely starved of talent. They could not get talented people. Hmm. They would bring people, H-1B folks that would you know, be brought here and would not have much a sense of context of what they were doing or of yeah. the culture. It was, and so I, I started a market. Originally, it was just me. I was doing training uh, and I would come in 
And I would just be that guy. Like, mm-hmm. oh, get Greg. He, he's easy to work with and he knows all of this esoteric details about com. Right. But after a while, it changed and I got into the business, started calling my friends and say, listen, man, I don't, you know, there's a bunch of us that didn't think the dot coms things really had the value. We were more interested in the technology. Right. Um, and we were turned on by that. We wanted to make money now. Yeah. Um, so I brought a bunch of those people together really early on and I started seeding the investment banks with like these super people. So mm-hmm. I was like the place – Infusion was a place you'd go if you needed really, really good A people, people wow. that could interface with the client, knew the technology. Yeah. We'd get it done. Yeah. Um, and that's how it grew. Okay. So what are you guys doing now? What's, what's this uh, IT makeover thing that you want to uh, – that, that Nick told me about? Yeah, the IT makeover, um, it's a trademark of ours, IT makeover. If you've ever seen like extreme home makeover, yeah. you definitely have <laughs> the gist. You know, I want to go in front of clients. Queer eye them. for the IT guy. Queer eye for the <laughs> IT guy. Uh, exactly. And the point was basically that when you work with .NET, yeah. you know, and other Microsoft technologies too, like BizTalk or whatever, you start to have this epiphany that this – can I use profanity? I really should. Yeah, yeah. Epiphany. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, epiphany's not profanity, but yeah, I was okay. going to follow yeah. it with some. Oh, okay, sure. Uh, <laughs> I just get, you just you have this feeling. It's like it isn't that hard. Yeah, if you would just let me use the .NET technology that I know is appropriate for this, my right. God, I, I could get this thing done in a right. quarter of the time. Yes, so that's the premise of the show. Is yes. that if you you let me do what I want to do, the technologies that I want to do, and I will give you a system that you think will cost two million, I'm going to get it done in three weeks. You know, at an effective yeah. price of twenty thousand dollars. Yeah. And uh, I was surprised. I went to New York City, and they were into it. And they yeah. wanted to do it. Um, actually, elite so modeling a agency. show. Yeah, it's like a, show. a TV show. Yeah, um, my brother is actually a film director. Okay, and this is going somewhere. Um, he actually wrote Mighty Ducks. If you're so, this, this is movie. going back to the whole A and E thing, the reality show. Well, and he put me in touch with uh, one of the producers for Pimp My Ride. Okay, a woman named Nikki Cal- Calabrese. All right, and she does documentaries, and she's won awards and stuff, and. Um, you know, she's attractive no- enough to irritate my wife uh-huh. um, <laughs> and to make me want to, you know, work harder. Um, but uh, <laughs> so I, I talked to Nick. I said, I want to do this show. And yeah. She's like, what, ch- what channel is it going to be on? I'm like, well, golly, uh, it's just going to be at conferences and stuff like that. Right. Um, but she would, she would direct it. And it, it's basically Microsoft funds it to different product groups. Mm-hmm. You know, like the SQL Server group, they have a launch. So they might fund something at SQL Server specific. Yeah. We're actually just about to launch. It hasn't started yet. Okay. Um, and I'm actually looking for team members for that, um, but you'd have to be a certain kind of person to. So now uh, it's a TV show, or is it an? So this is a, a TV show, but you actually need the people to do the makeover. That's is that right. What you're saying it's a film. Think of it more of a documentary for conferences. Okay, um, like, so you know, like you're, you're not going to see it on on A and E or uh, <laughs> not, not TNT yet. or yeah. Fox. Coming up next, uh, yeah. you know, you know, <laughs> base class libraries two O Whitehorse. That's, that's good watching. <laughs> it's good watching. <laughs> um, maybe for a certain class and maybe eventually, like I was thinking of doing multiple versions of it. Yeah. Some of them might be, yeah. um, dumbed down a little but, bit. But you know, I could see like you releasing it as videos that you could like use BitTorrent to distribute or something like that, or, you know, throw DVDs around at user groups and. Well, can I tell yeah. you the dark, nefarious nature of this endeavor? Okay. All right. The, the truth of the matter is I'm doing it because, um, uh, you know, I, 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 I have a, uh, I have an ego that needs to be fed and I need to be on film and IT, well, you know, <laughs> just like you obviously went to podcasting. Media I've got slut, a, that's a, right. Yes. Um, but actually the real thought is, is one of the ways we, we do well is we help Microsoft sell. 
Okay. That's what we do. We, we get, that's what a partner should do. So if you're a .NET partner, right. you help them sell and you do that by basically help them overcome their customers' objections. Yes. So the pur- purpose really is something that the sales force can use as collateral. Sure. And sit down and plunk in front of their people and say, Beautiful. look at these technologies. Look what these guys did. So now at your team, you have a bunch of developers, but you guys are busy, you know, solving the world's problems on Wall Street. So you're, you, this is a plea for, for smart developers? Yeah. Is that what we're doing here? Um, there is a plea for smart developers. Actually um, – To do these IT makeovers. For actually two things. IT makeover is one area where I do need a staff. Okay. Um, some people don't necessarily want that kind of – I mean it's, it's heads down crazy stuff, short periods of time. Yeah. Um, I mean, I happen to, to love that. But good visibility, obviously. Great visibility. Yeah. You, you, you're on camera. Everyone's definitely going to get to know you. Yeah. Um, we're just starting with the program, too. We're still selecting our first target. Wow. Um, if you actually go to the website, itmakeover.com, mm-hmm. you can see all the stuff that we're doing. Cool. There's actually, it's interesting, the, the city of Camden, you know, it's the worst crime city ever. Is it? Yeah, in the U.S. Camden, New Jersey? Camden, New Jersey. Wow. Number one. The SWAT team went in a few months ago. It was on CNN. Remember those... Well, I don't want to no, say it, but there was no, those kids in the trunk of the car. I don't watch. Uh, not, not, oh, I did hear that story. Yeah. Yes. You can't, you couldn't have helped but hear that story. Not yes. a happy story. Well, that's no. it. And Trenton took it over. The government of New Jersey took over Camden uh-huh. uh, and gave it to Microsoft to completely automate. And, uh, yep. What? Yeah. To yeah. Automate the city. Automate the city. Microsoft has a job to automate the city of yeah, Camden. Camden. They can do whatever they want. And we're, we're actually the partner <laughs> doing it. I'm, se- I'm totally serious. We're actually the partner doing it. Wow. So Microsoft gave it to us and we're working with them and we're it's a program called Sitting in a Box. And um what this we're going to This is surreal. I can't believe this that, is true. We should talk more, Carl. Oh. Um, wow. So yeah, so the premise is we're going to automate the city. It's like you have the fire department, the police department, uh-huh. the public works, all of these departments and it's okay. going into kind of a a dashboard. Okay. Uh type of deal that we're writing and we're using this crazy German library that automates some municipalities in Germany. Wow. Still in German. German.net. Would you like to take a look at that? Yeah, yeah, I would. Um, yeah. And we're using that. <laughs> anyway, whatever we finish with is ultimately going to go in the box and that's going to 70,000 other um, cities. Wow. So that's something that's we may- fascinating. Yeah, we may do an IT makeover on that. I'm not sure how the publicity and PR is going to work on, work on it, but- uh, so uh, if you're a developer listening to the show, I guess they want to get in touch with you, right? Why, yes, Carl. If you're a developer looking for a challenge, excitement, <laughs> if you're one of the top 20% of your firm and tired of working with the other 80. Sounds like fun. Yeah, it is, actually. Um, all kidding aside, we're actually really, really looking for people, but the right people. I mean, yeah. You can always find like, I hate to say this, but you can always find a C-sharp guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but we look for a special kind of person. Um, yeah. Generally, if you're like at a shop and you're like the guy everybody goes to, yeah. and you're starting to get that sort of existential .NET loneliness, like, uh-huh. gee, I'd really like to work <laughs> with people that were as smart as me. Right. Um, or I want to do exciting stuff or I want to work on a lot of different engagements and I want to do with the more cutting edge stuff, not yeah. the stuff that's already you know right. established. IT Makeover would be a great place or Infusion Development Proper for the trading systems would be a great okay. place. So what's your email address? Is that how they should get in touch with yeah, you? Yeah, I think I think so. Okay. Uh, email is as follows. It's gbrill, G-B-R-I-L-L, yep. gbrill, at InfusionDev, I-N-F-U-S-I-O-N-D-E-V. That's Dog Edward Victor. Mm-hmm. So gbrill at InfusionDev.com. I'm Gregory Brill again. Yep. Just email me directly. Um, just mention the show. What's the timetable on this? Um, I'm trying to, I, I would say probably if, if I had my dream, I would really like to, 
um, figure out who the IT makeover folks would be mm-hmm. in about two to four weeks because I, I have to figure out production and what I want to take on. And that's dependent on the kind of skill sets I get in. Okay. I have a slate of different projects. Um, for the infusion development, we're, we're currently in a situation, the market's kind of turning around. Yeah. Um, and our clients, the money people, are always the first to start spending when the right. market improves. We have a ridiculous amount of trading systems. We've got stuff in Boston. Um, in Charlotte, in New York City, and okay. Toronto, and uh, really, I mean, yesterday would would be great. And can these developers expect to get a raise over what they're currently getting? I would say, you know, well, depends on where they're working. Sure, I, yeah, that's yeah, true. <laughs> um, if they're working for Dad's company, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, probably. I mean, we're definitely above market rates. Well, okay. we're in New York City. We're a New York City based company, yeah. so that means we have to do that. Right. Um, and typically. You know, the salary is one thing. It'll be market rate or above. Yeah. What we really do is um, we let people participate in what, they, what they're able to develop. If they run a project, they run a team of a number of different people. Mm-hmm. If they even have the ability to expand the project, mm. they participate in that revenue. Yeah. So, Wow, that sounds great, man. I think it is. I think any, any of our listeners who are uh, sort of looking around for something new ought to get in touch with you. Well, I'd, I'd certainly like it. So thanks, Greg. All right. Well, thank you, Carl. Pleasure being here. Great show. We'll see show. you on the road trip in a couple of weeks. That's right. New York City, my town. Is there a restaurant you have in mind or should I just pick <laughs> something I know that I love? I don't know, but I think it's gonna. there's going to be a large number of people going out to dinner that night. A large number of people. So, All right. Well. You probably don't want to uh, volunteer to pay. Yeah. We'll try <laughs> going to a Microsoft regional office and, yeah. and take everybody to Morton's, which is what we right. do. Right. But we'll be hanging out with Forte and all those guys down there. So we'll see you there. All right, Carl. Thanks. Thanks, Greg. Anyway, let's, uh, you know, uh, quite a bit of intro, but um, thanks for sticking it out with us. Let's talk about Jackie Goldstein. Jackie Goldstein has been on the show before. In fact, show number 116 was titled Jackie Goldstein Part A because we knew that there was going to be a Part B coming up real soon. His, uh, his his big complaint is, you get me all going at 2.30 in the morning, and then we only have an hour. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're here talking to Jackie today. Let me tell you about him. Jackie Goldstein has achieved national and international recognition for expertise in Windows and .NET development in general, and Visual Basic and database applications in particular. He is the general manager of Renaissance Computer Systems Limited, which specializes in consulting, training, and development with Microsoft tools and technologies. He has over 20 years' experience developing and managing software applications in the U.S. and Israel, and is known for his ability to help developers understand and take advantage of new technologies. Jackie is a Microsoft Regional Director, a Microsoft MVP, the founder and monthly host of the Israel VB User Group, and is a featured speaker at international developer events, including VS Live, TechEd, Microsoft Developer Days, and Microsoft PDC, Professional Developers Conference, where we are right now, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Jackie works closely. Okay, not really, but you know that story. Jackie works (laughs) closely with Microsoft in the U.S., Israel, and throughout Europe. He was chosen by Microsoft as the Microsoft Regional Director of the Year for 1999 and also received the 2004 Outstanding Regional Director Award. Jackie was selected as a member of the INETA Speakers Bureau and is the lead author of the book Database Access with VisualBasic.net from Addison Wesley. He has also written several articles for the Microsoft MSDN website. 
Man, that uh, that list of credentials is really, really long. And Jackie, you uh, you recently got some kudos at TechEd Europe. What was the, all that about? That was really exciting, Carl. That was that my session on Quick Start for Developing Database Applications with VB.net and SQL Express 2005 was the 20th highest rated session at TechEd Europe. Out of about over 400 sessions, it was rated number 20. So that was really, really exciting. I guess people really enjoyed what I had to say, what Microsoft did with the product. It's tough to do with the developer sessions because it's always the IT sessions that are right at the top, and unless you're Kim Tripp, of course. Right. <laughs> yeah, I had, a, I had a tough time because I was in the database track, so that means Kim Tripp was all over there, so I had some stiff competition. Well, welcome back to the show, Jackie. It's, gl- it's good to have you back. We, we, it's a little uh, later than we wanted, but uh, this is part two, a, a conversation that we've started a while ago. Yeah, we had, I, we, the idea was to have part two a lot closer to part one, but it was actually, I guess, mainly my fault. I was just been so overwhelmed and busy with work. I guess that's a good busy. We've been finishing up a bunch of different projects. Right. Cool about the different projects that they're all different areas of .NET, of course. So what have you been working one on One project that we're finishing up that was a browser-based project, and that's for a company with a global company with a couple of different locations, mm-hmm. and they should be rolling that out over the next couple of months to the different sites. Mm-hmm. And we had another project that's a WinForm project. Cool. And that, that was actually a lot of heavy XML processing. And we actually came up with this architectural design that the DOM seems to support very nicely, but we haven't really seen it used pretty much anyplace else, where our business objects were actually derived from the DOM, so that all the processing the business objects themselves were DOM-based, and that the, our business objects for application were, were objects inheriting from various DOM nodes and DOM objects. We thought that was kind of neat, and that worked out very well for what we were trying to do over there. Why would you do that, Jackie? Yeah, it's, it sounds sort of data set-like. Why would, you, why would you inherit from the DOM? What did you get out of that? Well, we, we can talk about it a little bit later. I'm a big data set guy, so my, my default choice of, uh, of data or my business objects is going to be a data set unless there's a compelling reason to do that. So we sat down and thought about, you know, what does our data object have to be to passing data around in our application it was XML. Our, our input was XML. Our output was XML. The type of processing we had to do was XML-based, mm-hmm. very hierarchical data. Mm-hmm. So it just made sense to go with XML. So that's what we did, and it was just the right, you know, like I said, my default choice in general is a data set, but yeah. you always have to choose the right, the right data type, the right data object for your application. In this you case, it was XML. It. You needed to access it with a DOM interface, in other words. Yes, but in other words, when I when I have if I had a you know business object foo and if there's another business object bar, those objects were you know derived from you know an XML node. Right. So that's just what made sense for those objects. Yeah. And when we could you know we could have our specific tags loaded up and we were loading up the DOM, it was actually very neat. Yeah, oh, that's pretty cool. It makes sense to me that since you started with XML and you had to end with XML, why leave it at all? Stay in that space the whole time. Right. I mean, there was no database per se. There was no, certainly no classical database. Our, all our data sources were XML sources, pretty much. You'll have to let us know how that turns out. Uh, you know, on a on a later show. That sounds really cool. Well, I'll, it'll it'll only be if I could use that on the same technique on another project. Because this is one of those projects where if I say much more about it, I have to shoot you and then myself because we have a very very <laughs> strict contract on what we're allowed to say about this project. So hopefully we could take the same technique, use it someplace else, and then I could talk about it all I want. But for this particular project, I'm not going to be able to do that. Cool. Um, we have a third project. We have a third project. Okay. 
which is, you know, those first two projects were 2000, you know, .NET 2003 based, Visual Studio 2003 based. Our third project was Whidbey based, 2005. And this is a project with a combination of a proof of concept framework or basic framework type of project for a financial services company in New York City mm-hmm. where they're trying to replace an existing application they've been running their business on for many years and convince them to go with .NET, and we had to show that, that it made sense for their application and for what they were trying to do. And this is a project that has a little bit of everything in it. We've got some wind forms, some web forms, some web services, hmm. and, of course, lots of VB. So. And, of course, this is another thing you'd have to kill us if you told us any more. Oh, I could tell you a little bit more. What do you want to know about it? Oh, we I don't nice, know. We had a nice distributed architecture. Okay. Which was very nice. We, you know... A couple of different web service servers, a couple of layers of web service servers. So we had some agents on both sides, but some cool. of the communications required queuing or nice. might require queuing. So we wanted to have a lower level object that can handle the communication protocol. So if we want to queuing, have queuing, we could stick it in there. If we don't, we could just bypass that and not affect the higher levels of the application. Something yeah, you can we're, really We're using there into. our main form of passing data around is data set. Yeah. And we're taking advantage over there of some of the new cool stuff in 2005 in terms of design time data. So we can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's uh, that's on. where we wanted to pick up the conversation, actually. We talked about ADO.net and VB, specifically quite a lot about VB in the last uh, show. And you wanted to get into some of the data access tools in Visual Studio more than just uh, ADO.net in VS 2005, Right. Right. So, but I, I got to do one thing, Carl, before, sure. we, before we transition to the more technical part of the show. Okay. One of the other cool things about the project I was working on, it gave me the opportunity to rehire an old employee of mine. So I just want to give a quick shout-out to Kim Major, who's come back to work for me and did a great job on this project. Great. And you'll be glad to hear, Carl, that besides our great ability to work together and develop great .NET projects, we share something else in common. Oh, what's that? We both love your Clementine presentation. <laughs> so I, I, I listened to that. I hadn't listened to it for a while, and I listened to it with him, and I, I just smile every time. So you may want to tell the folks who haven't had the opportunity to, to listen to that what that is. Sure. Okay. Well, you know, I can just give you the URL, bestofclementine.com, and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> That, that is that's the video, not the, not just the audio, right? Yeah, that's both the audio and the video. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> fun, so fun, so fun. That's a lot of fun, and we share that too. So, yeah, that was that, great. That's a great, uh, a great entertainer at you know family Christmas parties, and people are calling me and asking me to come do it at their parties and stuff. Now <laughs> it's pretty crazy. It's a bit of a generational thing. It is. Yeah, it is because you know. You have to be of a certain age to know where some of those songs are coming from. Right, right. Well, you know, okay. If you, if you did have a misspent youth and watch all those TV shows, you might not know what they are. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're under the age of, say, 30. <laughs> yeah. I'm not throwing numbers out there, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just came back from my 20th high school reunion, man. Uh, talk about feeling old. Now, it's only the 20th, but I still feel old. And and absolutely stupid. I mean, you, when you go and you know, you know see people that you haven't seen in twenty years, nobody remembers their names of anybody. Did did they pass out name tags? No. 
You know, and I'm sorry, who are you? We dated for five years. Oh, jeez, I'm sorry. God. <laughs> I just assumed they'd be running up to you and saying, aren't you Carl from .NET Rocks? Yeah, no, they have no, no clue. No clue. <laughs> no clue. My town is, is not uh, computer savvy. My high school, you know, they look at me as the guy, and they look at me as the guy who could fix the projector in a jam, you know? That's about it. Anyway, let's talk some about uh, the data access tools that you've uh, that you've been working with. Great stuff, by the way. I'm enjoying working with it in Widby. I'm sorry, in Visual Studio 2005 beta. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you think? I think it's really great stuff. I mean, what if you're not familiar with it? What it is? It's number one, a real data set designer in yeah. 2003. We had something to design our data sets with, but it was really an XML schema designer, not a data set designer. Right. So here we have a real graphical data set designer. It picks up some of the metadata from the database. I mean, even the simple things that were always very annoying in 2003, something as simple as not picking up relations between tables yeah. automatically. I, if we wanted to link tables in the data set, we could always, we would have to go ahead and add that manually. Mm-hmm. And now that you know, the data set designer will pick that up itself. Very flexible. We do whatever we want. This is Carl Franklin. First of all, let me thank you for listening to these ads. These ads are the way that we pay for our bandwidth so that you can download the show, and without them, we wouldn't exist. So listen up. Let me tell you about these two new ASP.NET components released by our sponsor, Telerik. The first one, RAD Callback, represents a suite of AJAX-based user interface components that allow you to update page content without postback and loss of scroll position. As you know, AJAX technology delivers much shorter response time and eliminates that page flicker, which results in a much better user experience. But what's unique about the Telerik RAD callback controls is that they offer this interoperability with the standard third-party controls, and they successfully solve the view state persistence issue, which is a big problem with AJAX. Uh, The second new component is called RAD Dock. That's right, docking. It represents a content placeholder which can be moved docked, undocked, resized, pinned, minimized, and so on. The customized page layout can be saved to a file or a database and reloaded when needed, which is a typical requirement for portals and extranets. Both RAD callback and RAD dock products are offered individually or as part of the Telerik RAD control suite that we've been talking about. So do yourself a favor, check them out, Telerik, T-E-L-E-R-I-K dot com. Download an eval copy and... And check them out. We really like these guys. Now let's get back to the show.
Jackie, before you get off on another uh, point there, uh, I, I find it, first of all, refreshing in Visual Studio 2000, in .NET in general, and even more so in 2005, that Visual Studio is very schema-aware, you know, automatically figuring out the parameters for commands, for example, automatically figuring out the relationships between tables. And it's because of this great uh, data provider model that that says if you are going to make a data provider for .NET, you have to provide schema information. And I just I just think that's great about .NET in general. And in 2005, they just sort of take that to the next level. For sure, for sure. And you know, I, I think I may even mentioned this in the previous show. What I like to push the VB team on is that it should be as easy to develop your standard bread and butter database applications should be almost as easy to develop them in .NET as it is in Access. Right. But .NET's got lots of features, lots of great things, but if you, just, if you have a deadline and you have to just crank out some basic input and display forms and some reports, it's a lot faster to do it in Access than, than in .NET. Yeah. And yeah. I think with these tools, the design time data tools, they really, really close that gap. Yeah. So that it's really a very justifiable decision and you have all the other benefits all the other flexibility everything around that that you get with .NET you don't have an access but you can still get out those basic screens almost as quickly and yeah. I think that's really great yeah I, I can agree. go ahead and design I would say for most applications I could design the better part of my data access layer within the designer there are going to be some things I probably want to do outside of that and have custom objects to mm-hmm. do mm-hmm but for the basic stuff, which is based my basic queries and my basic updates, for those things where I type data set, where I know what my data is going to look like, the shape of my data, yeah. the schema of my data, I can do that graphically without sitting down actually writing any code, just defining what my commands are going to be, and yeah, the, S- the SQL statements or the store procedure calls. It's a lot cleaner in Visual Studio 2005 too, right? I mean, you know, I, I always see eyes glaze over when I start making type data sets in, in, in class and showing that to people. It's just like a level of weirdness. They don't know how to, where to put that, you know? Um, and even after you do it, you don't really know what to do with it. Right. So here there's a nice story what to do with it, which is the, data, the WinForm data binding story. Right. Which is, again, very powerful. And, you know... You have to be careful, and quite honestly, you have to be careful. Sometimes we've had features in the past that we've talked about that were great features for demos. But when you sat down to build applications, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't really right. live up to the expectations. It's it's a brick wall a lot of limitations. We've hit that issue over and over again with, with Visual Studio. I mean, it happened in VB3. Yeah. Data binding looked cool. It dragged and dropped great. It demoed awesome. But don't ever build an app like that. Yeah. Right. So what I like about this, I've had the opportunity, I've actually used these tools on two real projects. Besides all my demos and all my presentations and training, I've actually used them in two real projects. One was the project I talked about, this New York project, and another one is for a project, I'm doing a bunch of things for the SQL team in Redmond, the SQL Express team. Cool. So I've, got, I'm, I've been developing a starter kit, and I've written some white papers that you'll find on MSDN soon. But one of the things that should be released there shortly as well is a starter kit where the idea is we to show people that you could use SQL Express 2005, which is the free version of SQL Server Engine, yeah. to build real applications. And the idea is that it's an application that you just download it. It's going to do some real work for you. And if you want to extend it, you know, there's a source code. If you want to learn how we built it, 
there's a source code, and you can go ahead and see it. So when building those applications, I, you know, I had to go beyond the demo. I had the level of understanding and questioning and trying to figure out what to do beyond what I would do have to do for a simple demo. But the answers were there, and the answers were good. So there, yeah, there's, there's a room for some improvement next time around, but it's clearly something that's usable in a, in a real application. So I was very happy about that. Do you, is there a URL for that yet, or is that something that's not yet, forthcoming? Not yet. We're, we're doing some final testing, and they'll make that available. I, but it should be available, I guess, I would say, in the, you know, in the, RT, the RTM time frame. Okay, and that'll be on the so, SQL Server Express website, or where will that be? I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what, what, okay. where it'll be. Well, uh, if you send me a link, I'll, I'll post it on the show, or maybe we'll mention it on the show. So that, okay, that so sounds really available. cool. Yeah. I'll let you know. Um, All right, so Jackie, can you define uh, what a table adapter is for me? What's a table adapter? A table adapter is a type data adapter. A data adapter, again, quick review, data adapter is basically the object that bridges the gap between the, the real database or the data source and our disconnected data set. So it's actually the only object in ABL.net that actually talks to a database, that and the command object, but he's really using command objects himself. Yeah. So the type data adapter lets me define commands, and it'll wrap the type the data adapter and give me a very nice usable interface. You know, if you have, take a simple problem like if I have a form and I want to display data in a grid, let's say, and I'm displaying, let's say, customers, I'm displaying you know, various permutations on customers, customers by city, customers by zip code, by, by name, whatever it is, mm-hmm. How would I deal with that today, in, in 2003? I basically ha- want to sh- show different cuts of the same data. Yeah. So data basically views. today I have, I think, two approaches that I, that I could use. One approach would be to say, well, I'm just going to throw a couple of different data adapter c- components on this form so I can give each one a separate SQL statement and let it generate its update statements. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, if I want customers by this, customers by that, I can do that. I have to run the wizard or write the code to do that. Another approach, a little bit more sophisticated, is to say, okay, no, silly for me to throw 10 of those components on a form. Let me just put one component on the form, and then manually, meaning in code, go ahead and change the select statement all the time. Right. Which now becomes well, now a you, trivial amount of work, perhaps. Yeah, and also now you are you don't get the benefit of store procs and all that. So. Right, I could probably do that, too, but it means manually controlling and managing all sure. of those select statements. Sure. One of the big benefits here is that it'll, it manages it for automa- me automatically. I just work at a programmatic level. I'll have different commands, fill, you know, custom, fill by customer ID, fill by state, fill by whatever it is. Hmm. That's, the, that's the function, that I, the method that I call. It will internally generate all the code. You know, very often we'll have commands with lots of parameters, especially when you talk about update and insert commands. So they have lots of parameters, and that's just code that we have to just write over and over just... Time-consuming, not very... So how exactly does that work? Let's say we wanted to make two different permutations. Let's say we wanted to select customer by contact name and by, you know, uh, company name. How, how exactly does that work? So how in the data set designer, typically every table in my data set is going to be associated with a table adapter. And for a given table adapter, I can go ahead and define multiple commands. I'll have one command for, the, say, for like my customer table... A customer table will have a schema. It'll have the, the columns that we're having in that table. They mm-hmm. can match the database ones. They could, or they could not. They could mm-hmm. be different names, or only some of the tables that are physically in the database. But that's my table, okay. like in my data set. 
it'll associated with that will be a table adapter which will have the command. So command my first command will be fill customers. That will just bring all the fields and all the records. And and how do you how do you define that in Visual Studio? In Visual Studio I'm gonna do that inside the data set designer. Okay. I'll run through a wizard that will prompt me step by step. The only thing I really have to do besides choosing options along the way is tell it what the select statement is. So it could be so I could just type in a select statement. I can use a query okay. builder to build a, a SQL statement. I got it. I can I can specify, and in this in this sense, it's a little bit. It's pretty similar to the the, the configuration wizard we have for the data adapter in two thousand three. Yeah. Where I can say use the existing store procedures that some DBA wrote for sure. me that's up on the server already, or please go ahead and create store procedures for me. So you're still creating either uh, calls to store procs, multiple calls, or multiple SQL statements, except that you're doing it all under one roof? Is that the, well, the benefit? One roof, and I don't have to manage it now. So at right. runtime, run I just say... With a single you know, component. Get customers by state. Yeah. And pass it the state as a parameter and, and the table that I want to fill. Yeah. And that's it. I'm done. I don't have to fill out the... I don't write code to fill in the parameters. I don't have to write the code to fill up yeah. those parameters, it'll do everything automatically. It'll actually do type checking those parameters as well because I'm calling a function, a method called, you know, get customers by state. So it'll make sure that I'm passing in parameters. If it's by passing a nothing or a null, when it's not nullable, it'll throw an exception. Yeah. Nice. So actually, Will it actually validate the state? Like, would you only have two-letter state codes? Would it check those automatically and say, no, that's not a valid state? No, but the state's going to be passed in as a string, so it's not, again, the CLR, the CLR type is going to be a string. Right. It's not going to be able to pick up that it's only two characters. That falls in the realm of business logic, I'm, I imagine, Richard. Yeah, it's right. getting too smart. Yeah. <laughs> Although there are, you know, some of the things we can extend on, on, the, on some of the objects here is to take advantage of the partial classes technology. Yeah. Which, you know, we talked earlier a little bit about Using data sets as business objects or business objects, or actually another whole DOM we talk about as business objects. Mm-hmm. One of the other nice things about this new technology, the way we've built it here in 2005, is yeah, in, in 2003 we had type data sets, but one of the problems with it, they were, I like to say, they were very fragile. And by that I mean that, yeah, we, you know, we know that if somebody changes the scheme in the database, we don't have a choice. We have to regenerate the class. And that's, that seems reasonable. There's no way around that, really, if you want to have that new field, if we added a field in our data set. Yeah. The problem is, if I wanted to be more sophisticated and say, okay, I want to start adding some custom logic to my data set, to the code that was generated by Visual Studio, I add that code. When that code is regenerated, because I added a new field to my database, my custom code got wiped out. Right. In 2005, it takes advantage of the partial classes. The partial classes means that part of the definition of a class can be in one file and part can be in a second file. And the way that's typically split up is that all designer code, all designer generated code is in one file, and all of my code is in a second file. Yeah. We see that with the, we see that with WinForms also, for example. Right, yeah, that's the way they've cleaned up WinForms, taken all that goop out of there. You know, we've been talking about this a little bit on .NET Rocks, and, and in particular with Rocky Lotka and a little bit with Kathleen Dollard, too. Right. Um, in fact, I think on the same show we were talking about it, and then we recently talked with Rocky about it, but... Uh, it seems that one of the problems with that, and although it solves a, a great deal of problems in, in terms of being able to put any business logic in a type data set, uh, one of the problems is that you know partial classes doesn't mean that you can have multiple overrides in each 
part of the file. So, for example, the, um, the, the generator that generates the type data set will generate uh, overrides for the vir- some virtual methods on the table right. that, that you may want to also override in your business logic. You're out of luck. So you have to resort to events for that. And, and that's something that, uh, that we're brushing up against in, in, uh, in the beta anyway. Yeah, that, that's probably true. That, that sounds like something Kathleen would say also. So she's, she's the expert when it comes to code generation. Yeah. But of course, everybody but, wants multiple overrides. That's what we're really pushing for is saying, but that would know, be, give us multiple overrides. That would be crazy too, though. I mean, then you'd just totally lose control, wouldn't you? Well, you don't know what behaviors are happening where. It's just, you know, it's just that you can't, it just seems impossible sometimes to have, you know, to have it always, all the time. And you've, you're always constantly, you know, this is one of the things I like about Rocky is that he'll never tell you, you know, this is the way, this is good, this is bad. I know we've had a lot of guests on the show, uh, not a lot of guests, but, you know, every once in a while you come up across an, a guru or an expert who says, don't do this, do that. And what I'd much rather hear is, well, if you do this, here are the pros and cons. And if you do that, here are the pros and cons. And now let's talk about which way we should go. So anyway. Yeah, Rocky's really good at like that. Was we had a conversation, I think, at a VS Live conference recently where, you know, if you had to just pigeonhole us, Rocky's clearly in the, you know, you should be using business objects as your objects. And I'm, you know, more clearly in the, you should be, you know, using data sets as your business objects. And yeah. we had a conversation. It turns out that really what we're both saying is that my default choice for the type of applications I've typically built is data sets. And his default choice for the type of applications he typically works on are business objects. Right. But that's just our default choices. And under you know, right. the right set of circumstances, yeah, you know, there's no hard sure. rules. You know, I would, like I said, I would use DOM as my business objects or just classical business objects. And he's, you know, he's leaning his way sometimes a little bit more towards data sets. So he's, you know, he'll take a very rational approach to what's the right thing to do yeah. Yeah, within our given default choices. Right. And, you know, that's, that's why we have choices. It's good, I think. There is no choices. one right way. Right. Yeah, that was one of the things I liked about some of the stuff coming out of the PAG group at Microsoft. Yeah. Where they would try to tell us what the best practices were, but they would typically present several choices and give you what the trade-offs were, the pluses and minuses. Yep. And that's the way to, that's the way to do research, you know, to figure out what, what you need for your particular situation. Absolutely. PAG group is spectacular. They just keep coming out with new stuff. Have you been using the, uh, the enterprise uh, library at all? Yeah, we have. We actually on this, on this project, I think we use the enterprise probably for, the, for our configuration for access to our configuration files. Uh huh. Yeah, but it's, that's one of their base and the more simpler enterprise library blocks, and that worked out very well for us. So we use it for the config, and actually we had some simple data that we actually stored in a config file. So we used that, and that worked out very nicely for us. Yeah. And when we saw the power of that, where we could extend it in further uh, further applications, we didn't need it here, but it turned out to be very useful for us. We were happy with that. Um, Jackie, if you had to pick your favorite, uh, new feature of the, the designer tools, I mean, we've talked about a bunch of things that you like, but what, what's, what's the coolest? I've, I've, you know, it, it sounds, you know, way too geeky to have a favorite object. <laughs> but, uh, Not even a favorite object, a favorite designer. Yeah. Favorite feature of Visual Studio well, 2005. It's, 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 based on, it's consistent with my favorite object, but from the time... 
ADO.net first came out, my favorite object has always been the data adapter. Yeah. Because it started yeah. doing a lot of the things, a lot of things we could almost do with ADO 2.x, and that we really wanted to do, but just couldn't do it and let us do. I mean, even the simple thing of saying ADO 2.x, if you, you know, we had the batch update there. You can make all these changes and say, okay, now I'm done. Go update yeah. the database. Right. You know, we could do that very easily unless we wanted to update the database with a sort procedure. Yeah. And you couldn't do that in ADO 2.x. And then the data right. dashboard came along and said, hey, you know, you could update it you know, through this batch when you're done using anything you want, SQL, sort procedures, anything. So that flexibility really excited me. Yeah. And so there's a logical extension of that as the table adapter takes that just a step further. It says, okay, I've got this nice wrap that makes it a lot easier for me to set it up, a lot easier for me to use it. I just think in commands now. I have my schema. Again, let's say I have my customer's table as a simple example. I have my schema for the customer's table. And now I just have to think of the different ways I want to fill that table with data. And I just, in the designer, define those commands. And then in runtime, just call a simple method, pass yeah. it the parameters, and I'm done. Hey, and they, uh, they've done yeah. a lot of nice things all there also. They just they also have DB direct commands. So because very often they, we found that people, in order to update, to insert a new record into the database or to update the record, they would first stick it into a data table so that they could call the update on the data adapter. Yeah, yeah. So now instead of that, they have just hanging off the, da- the table adapter is a direct insert. So it's an insert method where you just pass it a series of parameters for the different field values that you want to go into the database, and it'll just directly push that into the database view. That's very That's cool. That's one of the nice things it does. Yeah. Another nice feature about the table adapter, this is actually a new feature. That, I mean, it was sort of around in a different incarnation very early on in the process. I think, you know, beta 1 or pre-beta 1, and then disappeared and came back partially now, and so it presumably will be in the final product. And that has to do, and this was just appeared in the August CTP. That's the latest CTP that's publicly available, and it's yep. a new feature, so I want to just point it out. Again, it's one of the, another one of my hot topics, which is concurrency. Yes. You know, so from day one, when I start talking about ADO.net, either people would just give me this blank stare, but they had no idea what I was talking about with this disconnected stuff. Right. Once they understood the disconnected stuff, the first question is always, hey, but what happens right. if somebody else changes the record that I want to change now? Right. And once they understood disconnected, that, that, that became the obvious question. Yes. And so I have this whole you know, presentation I've given many times on optimistic concurrency. What does that mean? And more than what does it mean is how does it work? And I guess the first question to ask is, do you really need it? You know, because there are some situations in which, hey, you know, last person in wins and it's not all that important. You know, do you need to hook up uh, this kind of concurrency uh, you know, transaction processing, you can go nuts with this stuff for every table. So, you know? so the, it really depends the on the kind of database clearly, you're working on. It depends. Yes. Yeah, that's and, the and correct I answer. I emphasize that point. You know, you know, dealing with concurrency with conflicts, there are a couple of choices. One is you say, you know, the first guy wins. No matter, you know, if somebody changed the record and then guy number two wants to change it, well, it's just too bad. Right. You know, go away, start again. But, you know, first, and of course, you have your choice, which is, pretty much a default choice of last guy wins. Right. And like you said, that may be the correct choice very often. Um, sometimes the right choice is to throw up a message and let the user decide. They say, right. hey, you want to change the value to this. You know, somebody else changed it to this, you know, before you. What do you want to do about it? Yeah. Or, you know, I like to say there's a fourth option, right. which is let the application figure out. Try to set up a set of rules. And this is, again, this is... Uh, 
I'm not sure many people actually implement this, but it's certainly possible to say, here's a set of rules based on whatever criteria and parameters you want, but let the application figure it out. Right. Based on, you know, if it's a supervisor versus a this, or if it's this. I mean, I've known people who have gone all the way to making a complete disconnected locking transaction system, you know, and I've even worked on some of those systems. So, uh, you know, that you can do just about anything if you if you if you want to do it yourself, but then you sort of do. You, are you really using a disconnected model at that point? Yeah, so that that seems kind of kind of a red flag. Let's say I'm right. really more disparaging than that. Yeah, if you start doing that, um, do you always need optimistic concurrency? No, sometimes yeah, just forget about it and let let the last guy win. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, very often, you at least want to know if somebody else has changed it. And so again, yeah. that's not built in. That's the default choice. In the data in data set design, and by default, in the advanced options, that's what it's going to be. It's going to implement optimistic concurrency. But if you want, you can turn that off and say, "No, I don't want it. Just let the last guy win." Now, in two thousand three, the optimistic concurrency is done by checking in the where clause of an insert and update, or is it a delete and an update of a delete and an update? Checking the where clause in the where clause, checking the original values. Uh, we're doing the same thing here. Okay, so first of all, that's, that, that in itself is uh, very often an eye-opener to people. When I ask right. them, you know, okay, we all agree that if we have optimistic concurrency, we want to know somebody else changed the row before us, you know, how does, how does .NET know? I mean, what's the magic there? And so, like you said, Carl, that's exactly what happens. The, either the configuration wizard or the command builder, if you're using that, will extend the where clause to include a comparison of the original values. Yeah, and you, have you, and, you, and you always get somebody who says, you know, we've got a table with 100 columns in it. You know, we're doing a check on in the where clause of every column with the original value. That, that seems like uh, it could really be a, a performance bottleneck, if not just a stupid idea. But, you right, know, the, so the thing that you have to remember, and it's, I think this is what you're about to say, is that Microsoft had to do that just to make a tool that would work out of the box with optimistic concurrency and uh, and not be particular to any particular platform, right? Well, so one thing is that let's you know, let's take your extreme case of 100 fields, so there's really two issues there. You know, is that do I really want to be flagged as a conflict if I change field 3 and he changes field 95? Yes. That may right. just be perfectly fine. There's no reason to annoy anybody that hey, there's a conflict. Right. So the way to address that again, this is just the extendability. Out of the box it works really nicely, but if that's yep. not what you want, you can just go ahead and change that that statement. You can right. just go ahead and change the where clause, either at design time or at runtime. Right. So that's what I like about the data that you've got that flexibility. If you don't like the out of box way of doing things, you can just go ahead and change it. Now the performance question is, is a real question. That's a good question, and that's this new feature that they managed to get in now. It seems, which is that the classical way of solving that is using a timestamp field. Yeah. You add to your table a timestamp field for the row. The timestamp field is just a field that says it's some numerical value that's, that is changed every time the row is modified. Right. And you include that in all your select statements and your update statements, and then you, that's compared as part of the workflow to make sure that's the same. Right. If it's not the same, that single field, then something's changed. Right. So in the August CTP, in the data, in the data set designer for the table adapter, if you choose the option for implementing optimistic concurrency, what it will do, it will check to see if that table in the database has a timestamp. 
mm-hmm. field. If it does, it's going to go ahead and use that. So it'll Sweet. generate the where statement where it's just including the primary key and the timestamp. And it doesn't, if it doesn't add have the a timestamp. Time then it's go back to the old way of doing things yeah. of comparing all the fields. That's awesome, you know. And I'm glad that they're not adding a timestamp column. That would be dumb. But yeah, you always get the question, you know, it should add a timestamp field. Oh yeah, yeah. Just run that by your DBA and watch the fireworks fly. You know, what's interesting to me, being a SQL Server guy, is that for years we've been told, you know, the timestamp was originally four. It was, it's actually a sequential number for every change in the database, database wide. So it doesn't matter what column, what table, anywhere, each time you make a change to a row, it would, inc- it would increment this number. So the number is unique. Right. And it always goes forward. And it was really originally going way back to the beginning of SQL Server. It was part of how SQL Server would recover from failure. It can see the trail of the order it changed things. Mm. And it doesn't use it for that anymore. But people started using it exactly the way we're describing here for concurrency. And so they couldn't take it out. They just left it in. But mm. for a long time, we were told, well, we're going to deprecate this. The biggest problem, of course, being that timestamp, the name, has a special meaning inside of the SQL standard that is not the same as the way SQL Server uses it. Ah. So they were they were trying to get away from this. But, you know, now that I look around, I can't find any evidence that Microsoft's really going to deprecate it. So I'm wondering if uh, they, maybe they backed off on this because it's, they must it's very useful for that. Yeah, they must have. Right. So I'm, I was very happy to hear that they got that in. They, you know, again, if you look back at the early betas, there were lots of options for concurrency, and I guess they had, you know, a lot of issues and actually implement them in a, in a meaningful fashion. But clearly, the, you know, a reasonable set of choices is okay. If I have a timestamp and I want to go that route, support that for me in the tool. And if not, then go back the other way. And if neither of those choices are good, then I'll just go write my own. But that's that's great. You know, I for one, a lot of people aren't going to do that. I for one, I'm really glad to hear that it'll that it'll do that. So much better. Yeah, so, so I heard that I actually went ahead and checked and make sure that that's really the code that's generating in the August CTP, and I was happy to see that it really is. Um, the other the other thing I like about the another cool feature on the, this is actually, I guess, a, a data adaptive feature, not a, not a design time, but since that's my favorite object, uh, a new feature in ADL 2.0 is the batch update. Yes. And I get to specify the batch size. And um, I actually have a, have a funny story about that with, with an important lesson to it, of course. Two important lessons. <laughs> okay. So the, the, the story there is that, you know, in, in 1.x, the data adapter, when you do an update, it goes across all the rows in, in, the data, in the data table that you specified, looks to see which ones have been changed, and then executes the correct insert update or delete command against the database. Mm-hmm. The problem is that each of those is done one at a time. So if I, you know, let's say if I have a 1,000 rows in my table, I've changed 100 of them or 10 of them, yeah, it'll only hit the database 100 times, not 1,000 times, but it's making 100 round trips, mm-hmm. which is a real performance issue. So we, in, in 2005, in .NET 2.0, I have a batch size I can specify. I can say, do my update in batches of 5 or 10 or all in one batch. Mm. And I'd given, <clears throat> this goes back probably well over a year I had already been doing presentations on this and demoing this. And, you know, if you want to show a skeptical crowd that this really works, how would you do that? That, hey, that, you know, really are sending it back in batches. Right. So the way you would do that is, is using the use SQL profiler. profiler. Right. To say, yeah. hey, if I, if I don't use, you know, if I leave my batch size being one and I'm updating 10 rows, then I'll see 10 commands. And if I change it to five, then I'll only see two commands. 
Now, Jackie, um, when you specify the batch size, and let's say you're doing an all-in-one batch or even 10 at a time, you still get the same level of, of uh, errors coming back. You still get the same kind of granularity. You're not going to get just a general error that something happened with one of those rows. You're going to know exactly what happened. If right, it's goes just wrong. a matter of how it's getting passed back to the server. Okay. Well, that works out nicely. So that's the way I would convince people. And I, I had done some presentations, and that worked well. People were convinced. Yeah. And back, I think in April, I was giving a presentation to a user group. And like a good presenter, so lesson number one is, as a good presenter, practice your demos before you go to present. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I was a new CTP, so I wanted to make sure my demos still work. And so I, you know, did some stuff. I checked, I set my batch size. I had maybe I had 10 rows that I changed, changed my batch size to five and ran it. And, oh, my gosh, I saw 10 commands in the profiler. So I said, okay. <laughs> I ran it a couple of times, kept getting the same result. So I came to the conclusion that um, one of a few things that happened, either I had some gross misunderstanding of how this feature was working, or maybe in this particular CTP build, it was broken. I couldn't figure out why I was seeing <laughs> 10 commands if they should have been just two, if they yeah. were a batch size of five. And then I remembered I had a conversation with Pablo Castro from the ADO team a couple of months before that, and he said that, you know, based on my conversation, remember that maybe they were, they were changing and they were doing that. So I quickly, in a panic, but this was like, of course, the night before the presentation, I called him up and I said, hey, you know, this is what's happening. You know, what, what's going on here? And I said, and he basically said, yeah, 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 no, that, that's, that's by design. That's the way it's supposed to work. Hmm. Uh, but basically, they went ahead and redesigned the whole mechanism for this batch update. There were some really fundamental problems with the early implementations in terms of the caching, and there's also like a 2100 character limit. So if you had a large batch, with a lot, with just the text size would just be a limit in SQL Server, and it couldn't handle that. So they went ahead and redesigned it, and they did it at a much lower level. They did it down to TDS level. So really, there's only one round trip going across, but it gets you know re re resurfaced on the other side already as separate commands. So it showed up in the profiler as separate commands, but in reality, there's really just one packet going across the, the, the interface. So yeah. happy to see it was a good. But that's a good thing. That's a great thing if you know that to expect that. <laughs> but when I saw it showing up in yeah. the profiler like it did before, I was a little concerned. But that's a great thing. And again, it, it improves performance. It improves the cache, the, the command cache of SQL Server was the way it's handling that. But it was one of those things that was very surprising. It's a good thing I practiced my demo. Yeah. And. Uh, <laughs> And there's a nice blog entry on the, over on the Data Access Guys blog on a blog at msdn.com.dataaccess with a real detailed it, explanation of what they did there. But of course, now the only way to show that to a skeptical audience, you can't just do it with a SQL profiler. You need to have something like Netmon to really see what the data across a network level is looking like. That's another fun feature of the data adapter. I really like the data adapter, the stable adapter. I found the issue around the deprecation. The only thing they're going to deprecate is the name timestamp. It's going to ah. be changed to row version. Well, that ah. makes sense. That's yeah, because that's what it really is. Yeah. Good. Good job, so, man. Yeah. That's that's the way to Google. Yes, yeah, actually, no, you know, I went to the <laughs> books online for the 2005 CTP. All right. Sweet. Well, uh, Jackie, that that's there's really no good segue there, but uh, 
as what about SQL Server 2005? Uh, how how far have you gotten into into that in particular? Have you gotten into the the CLR hosted languages inside uh, inside of it? Well, I've actually been spending a lot of time with SQL Express. Okay. Well, I can talk about that a little bit. That's, I mean, you know, that, that's the free version of the engine. It comes with Visual Studio. So anytime you install Visual Studio, now you have the option of installing that. And it's, so I've always been a big fan of MSDE, which is kind of like the precursor. And this is, they're just taking it a step further. They raise some of the limitations and, you know, and things like CLR, you, you, you know, CLR programming in the engine, you've got that in SQL Express as well. Yeah. So that's really cool. Um, you know, like I mentioned earlier that I'm doing a couple of starter kits for them. So one of the starter right. kits that'll be released first is a teacher. I call it a teacher's pet, which <laughs> is basically a starter kit targeted towards teachers, classroom teachers, to manage their students and their grades. And again, the idea here is not to build a business around this. This is just to show how easy it is to build real usable applications with VB.NET and SQL Express. And so that that'll be available. It's very, you know, it's fully functional, cool. including reports. One of the other cool new features, which came into the Visual Studio beta process relatively late, is the report viewer control. Are you familiar with that, Richard? Carl? Yeah, no, I haven't seen that yet. Report viewer control, right? For SQL so, uh, reporting services. So what it basically is, it's the rendering engine from SQL Server reporting services. Right before that, if you wanted to. You know, use that engine. You had to basically have a license and to be able to use SQL Server reporting services, and then you would get these controls in this design environment. Now you don't need reporting services at all. You just go in your toolbox, and there you have this report viewer control. Yeah, which is a fully functional preview control. Sweet. Where you can you know print it'll export to Excel and PDF, and you get a designer. Wow. And that's just all built nice. in. And they actually have two in the box. You'll have a version for WinForms and a version for WebForms as well. So. That, that's, a, that's a pretty neat control. That's a lot right out of the box for, you know, for, for implementation. But as, as a VB developer or primarily VB developer and somebody who's developing mainly database applications, this is just becoming a great tool and a great environment. Because I'm getting, you know, I have my data set defined as a desire. Now I have this report viewer control. Yeah. I've got the SQL Express there as well. It's just becoming just a great environment and one-stop Shop. I find myself, you know, we used to be, I just, yeah, I'll date myself a little bit. I'm sure you can relate to this. When I first started developing with VB3, I basically developed with VB3 open and Access open because I was building database applications, and the way I would, you know, change my schema and play with my data would be in Access, right, because I was using MDB. Right. And then I grew up, and I was using SQL Server, so I was constantly bouncing between Visual Studio and Enterprise Manager. Or Query Analyzer. Right. Query Analyzer Enterprise Manager in Visual Studio. The idea now, what they're trying to do, and I, and, I, and I pretty much see that's what's happening to me, is that the idea is if I'm developing database applications with Visual Studio, I should be able to do everything I need to do on a day-to-day basis, at least, inside Visual Studio. Yes. I shouldn't have to be bouncing out to another tool all the time. Yes. Right. You know, yeah, if I'm going to need, when I start to set up my security things and things like that, okay, I'm going to have to do that. But to, you know, to define my store procedures, play with my schema, test my data, look at my data, load data, I should be able to do all that from inside Visual Studio, and I do. So I, you know, on a day-to-day basis, I'm not opening up any other tools besides Visual Studio. But talking about reporting services, one of the things that Microsoft announced at TechEd US, I believe it was, is that there'll be a version of reporting services available for SQL Express. 
So if you want some of the management features and the service side reports of SQL reporting services, that'll be available again as a part of the free download, which is SQL Server Express. Cool. Yeah, that's, that's great. Cool. And now I've actually got another scoop for you guys. I believe this is the first time someone is allowed to talk about this in public. So really? A, a, a scoop for you guys. Another feature that they're going to make available for SQL Express, which is full-text search. Wow, no kidding. So that's, that's something that will be available sometime after the November RTM. So that's, that's what I'm hearing. And uh, you know, they're, they're, we're getting more and more functionality down in SQL Express. I guess they want to make sure that anybody who's developing a basic application, maybe you know, basic, not in simple, just you know, your standard yeah. database application, yeah. you can do that with SQL Meat Express. So you've got your reporting, and now you've got your, you know, you'll, you'll have full text search. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, this could be. I don't see us getting analysis services for free. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, oh. Microsoft still has to make a living out there. But yeah. they're really giving us a lot of functionality in, in SQL Express. That's that's awesome. Yeah. No, that is the first time I've heard of this too. And you so heard it be, here, you know, folks. SQL Express will be you know available at the same time as the full version in November, and this you know this additional functionality will be available sometime after that. Awesome. Cool. Hey, hey, Jackie, uh, let me ask you a question I ask all my guests towards the end of the show. What's the coolest thing you've downloaded lately? Well, I don't know if it's the coolest. It's really the most, one of the most functional things that I've downloaded lately. Again, it's related to the XML project with XML Spy. I mean, that's okay. kind of oh, a yes. classic tool, but didn't have the need to download it and use it. Now, is that a download but, or is that uh, a pay-for product? Well, the answer to that is both. It, okay. it is a pay-for product. But you have a very functional version that you can download for free. Okay. It's not the full-blown product, but it's very functional. Um, I, the truth is my client actually started using it before we did to test some of the stuff that we were doing. And then we started doing the same thing. So we started using that. So we were very happy. So for the uninitiated, what is XML Spy? XML Spy is a, is a design environment. It's a, basically a design environment and a... Uh, testing environment for playing with XML and XML schemas. So if you want to validate, I don't know, instead of having to sit and write code to test, let's say, to, you know, to validate XML against a schema or to, to develop a schema or to test this, test that, it's a, it's a graphical environment for doing all that. So if you're getting into some you know, XML-intensive work, head over to that, to that website and download that tool. And then, again, if you need the advanced features, yeah, give the guy some money, but yeah. uh, they want you to get excited about the tool right. by downloading a, a very useful version of the tool for free. Yeah. So I've got a question for you, Carl, now. Okay, sure. At the end of the show. Shoot. You know, I hear that you that you got, you and Richard are going to be over at the V-Bug conference in the UK in November. We are. Doing your show. It's true. And I, I just can't figure out how you could get the RV over <laughs> to the UK. <laughs> We're going to hop across the pond. Yeah, we're uh, we're flying, of course. Yeah, we're flying over. Yeah, uh, the the uh, the conference in question is the twenty second, twenty third of November in Reading, or is it Reading? Reading. Yeah, North of London. I think. V- Reading, North no, of it's London. In- I'll be there as well. Yeah. So I know where it, I've actually been there before. That's where Microsoft's campus is. Not only are we doing .NET Rocks, but we're doing Mondays because Mark Miller will be over there. Yes, indeed. That's going to be crazy. You know they love Mondays in England. You know, I think more. I think Americans are a little bit more uptight than uh, than the <laughs> British audience. They love it over there. 
<laughs> Are you doing a conference session as well, uh, Carl? Uh, yes, I believe I am. And I say I believe because it's just not on the top of my brain right now. But I, yes, I am. You, you are, Carl. I looked at the schedule. You yeah, are. Good, Richard, good, you are cool. cool, Richard. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, I know. Yeah, I've got I one. I'm ready to go. And, and Jackie, I presume you're doing several. Yeah. I'm doing, I think, between the pre-con and the conference, I think I'm doing five. And they're all different. I'm doing a little thing on RSS and podcasting and blogging and accessing all that stuff with accessing RSS with VBNet. So. And I'm doing my SQL query uh, tips and tricks session. I'm actually getting to do a, a potpourri of different topics that I like to talk about. So we'll do some VB migration and some data access and some PAG and some SQL Express. Ah, cool. So, uh, I'm looking forward to that. It'll be fun. All right. Well, any last-minute words of wisdom or calls to action that you want to lay on the listeners? Call to action. Well, I guess call to action is data. if you're building database applications, it's a lot easier to build production-quality applications with Visual Studio 2005. Use the database, the data set designer. Use the design time tools. They're great tools for enhancing the capabilities of ADL.net. We didn't get a chance to talk about WinForms data binding, but once you've got your type data set, it becomes very easy to build, again, very usable, production-quality usable forms. You can customize them if you want. Yeah. But you can, you know, some forms for some of the applications I've built, I've had to customize. Some I've just been able to use the default layout that I get from the tools for the data binding. Binding that is works back. really nicely. It's a real-time saver. Yeah. Um, so if, you, that, if that's your area that you're developing your application, that part of the application, you, you need to check it out. It's really cool stuff. Yes, it is. Uh, one of the call to action is more of a request than a call to action and a chance for some, you know, listener input. I'm working on another starter kit with VB.net and SQL Express, and we're looking for ideas. So whether you're a professional developer and you want to see some techniques or you're a non-professional developer and programmer and you want to say, hey, what's this all about? How do I do this? How do I do that? I want an application that I can use and extend. Shoot me an email from my website or my blog. I'd love to get some ideas and some input for the type of things you'd like to see in a starter kit that we'll be posting up on the Microsoft website. Fabulous. Jackie, I can't tell you how much fun this has been. I love data. I love data access, and it's a lot of fun hearing about all the new tools in, in VS 2005. So Thanks. I hear you like VB2 also, right? Yeah, I, I, I tend to uh, favor the, <laughs> the if and if. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Carl, thanks a lot. Richard? pleasure it always always fun it's always fun and we'll see you in november in in reading right all right so they practically speak the same language as us you know that right yeah it's almost the same <laughs> <laughs> all right we'll see you later thanks a lot guys all right bye bye dotnet rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl Never Sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Yes, I'm a-